0: Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity.
1: This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde.
0: Hey, once again, welcome to Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. I am so happy, as always, to welcome my friend Eric Peters from epautos.com. And Eric, I believe we actually have some good news to discuss today regarding uh, the whole coronavirus uh, crisis and shutdown and response.
1: Uh, we do. I think we've finally reached an inflection point. And a good analogy uh, to, to get this point across is the old 70s movie Network, where the guy threw open the window sash and screamed into the streets that he's mad as hell, and he's not going to take it anymore. Across the country, people are openly defying the lockdown orders and beginning to open their businesses. One of the best examples of this is out in California, where, of all people, Elon Musk, who has been a good government snuggler uh, for all of his life <laughs> – has defied it has decided to openly defy governor Newsom's order and reopen his plant and by doing so because he's such a high profile guy i think he's going to encourage a lot of other businesses in california to say you know what i'm not going to uh, i'm not going to stay shut down either my economic livelihood is on the line here the heck with this uh, you and i were speaking off the air a little bit about something that's going on in michigan where a 77 year old barber has also decided to open his business, and apparently citizens are gathering to protect him in case the government tries to hut, hut, hut him for doing so. In Pennsylvania, my understanding is that about half the counties have decided to openly flout the governor's order to, to maintain the shutdown, and the county governments are saying that they will not enforce the shutdowns, and businesses are beginning to open there as well.
0: So I guess this just proves what critics have been saying all along about how short-sighted and greedy and capitalistic these people really are, and they just want Grandma to die.
1: Apparently, yeah, that's <laughs> going to be the narrative, but I think people can also see with their eyes... That, uh, at, 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 uh, to be generous, the, the the whole thing has been grossly exaggerated and overhyped. Also, speaking of that, uh, uh, Dr. Bricks, uh, Bix or whatever her name is, apparently uh, came out the other day and actually said that the CDC has been plumping up the number of so-called cases and the number of deaths that have been attributed to coronavirus at any rate, I think the bottom line is that most people, on the one hand, don't want the old to die, obviously, but at the same time, they don't want tens of millions of people uh, to have their economic livelihoods killed either over this, that there has to be some kind of a sane middle ground here.
0: There's a, there's a writer by the name of Tom Cronowitter who uh, made the suggestion last week, and I thought this was actually a very sound thing. He said, these judges, these police officers, these governors and you know, politicians, mayors, he says they need to have their paychecks cease immediately mm-hmm. because right now they're the ones still receiving paychecks. None of them are in danger of m- missing you know, a dime from, from their compensation. They're not going to miss a meal, but they need to understand the, the conditions that they're mm-hmm. insisting everybody else operate under. And he says, I think it would That's only be fair. Let, let them miss the next <laughs> three or four paychecks.
1: It, it's an extremely valid point. It's easy to, uh, to, and I'm going to use the word, feign concern for people who may get sick and die from corona from the comfort of a, of a guaranteed job and a guaranteed paycheck uh, and not have to make any of these difficult choices because you're secure. And uh, it's absolutely true that the, these government officials who declared us not essential declare themselves essential, so they're not hurting. So it's easy to stand by and and watch everybody else lose their job. Who cares? It's not your job. It's not your business. Uh, you're going to stay in business. And that's outrageous. It's outrageous in principle. The idea that the government can simply say that your work, you know, what you do to put food on your table and to feed your family is somehow not essential. It's the most outrageous thing I can conceive of.
0: Well, and I'm happy to see some cracks starting to appear, you know, in in that. uh, Well, we have to we just have to all, you know, bind together here and endure this and and do what we're being told by these experts and authorities. Uh, There was a policeman. Maybe you saw this up in Seattle who posted a a video encouraging his fellow officers, guys, we need to question, are we doing the right thing when we're going around threatening and ticketing and arresting people for violating some of these inane orders? He says, you know, you're you're betraying the trust of the community. And the response that he received was overwhelmingly supportive, even from his department. They were like, this is great. We support this 100%. And then three hours later, they came back to him and said, okay, it's time to take the video down. And and he actually ended up losing his job as a result of it. I mean, it had 400,000 views within within a matter of a day or so. But the powers that be said you can't be a police officer and defy the governor of the state of Washington.
1: Sure. Well, he did the right thing and he also did the self-interested thing uh... the the undertow of that post was that look if they keep doing this the cops i mean enforcing these outrageous edicts uh... at some point the legitimacy is going to evaporate and the consequences of that uh... are ungodly uh... it you know it will mean it will mean violence ultimately if people come to view uh... police officers as essentially the pit bulls uh, of a tyrannical government uh, they're not going to be able to step outside of their homes without being in fear. And, and that's something that nobody wants.
0: And they live among these communities. So it's it's not like, you know, they can retreat to some safe, you know, forward operating base somewhere and live behind the wire. They're, their families, their lives are right there in those communities. Yeah, I, I hope they will take his warning, too. I have to ask you, what did you think about, uh, I know there, there was an incident down in Texas, I believe in Odessa mm-hmm. last week, where yeah. uh, a bar owner had reopened her bar and members yeah. of Open Carry Texas showed up and stood on an adjacent lot to, again, you know, show their support and, and you know, to, to make sure that the authorities didn't come shut her down. Well, enrolled the SWAT team with their RAP and, and took all these guys down and charged them with felonies for possession of a gun mm-hmm. on restricted property. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, if they continue to do that, they're literally playing with gasoline and a match. At some point, the straw is going to break, and the the whole thing is going to come undone. And once that starts, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. These things are, are not reasonable. These are not lawful orders. How is it that somehow the Constitution has been suspended? and unlimited arbitrary power has been confirmed on these these government bureaucrats to essentially do as they like with our lives how did that happen that's not that's not the way it's supposed to work in this country and people get that whether you're on the left or the right ultimately people didn't vote for this somehow we just became effectively serfs in an authoritarian system where these people can just tell us We can't work. We can't go out. We are not allowed to do this. We're not allowed to do that. It's outrageous and it's not acceptable.
0: Well, I think there's safety in numbers. Case in point, there was a woman down on the California beach. I think it was Huntington Beach last week. And, you know, there was a protest there. The beach is shut down by Governor Newsom because it's not safe for anybody. And she finally just grabbed a flag and ran out there on the beach. And the police went after her to arrest her. But when enough people ran out there after her, I mean, finally, there's dozens, maybe hundreds of people starting to stream onto the beach. Sure. The police looked around and said, okay, let her go. What's the point?
1: There is strength in numbers, and ultimately, maybe we need to gather together as citizens and start to do that and support one another. So if you have a business in your community and the owner of that business has the heart and the courage to open up his shop, gather a bunch of people there and support the guy. Stand out in front and, and make it very, very awkward, very, very difficult for the cops to come and arrest that guy and shut the business down.
0: Yeah, it's you know, I, I guess it has to be said, it's not without risk. But, uh, you know, what are we willing to are we if we're not willing to risk something to stand up for our freedoms Then I would guess we really don't deserve it in the first place?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, this is a critical moment in American history, and we've got to push back against this, ideally to push back in a way that's not violent, just to reassert, frankly, sanity, that that this perpetual lockdown, this turning of the entire country into a kind of sickness gulag is crazy. It's crazy, and it's unrealistic, and it's 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 not acceptable. It has to stop.
0: Well, and the, and the danger, as you have pointed out, is it's a very open-ended kind of crisis. Every time we're told, okay, well, a couple more weeks, so we're going to have to... The goalposts keep moving uh, by those in authority as to when we can start to see some return to what life was like before.
1: Right. Well, and they keep using this, this conflation of cases implying that people who have got this virus are somehow in mortal peril of their lives, when if, you know, you look at the facts, that's just not the case. And we have to get around that. It's, it's, it's normal. It's part of, of life that people get sick. And, yeah, sometimes people do die. We have to, re, we have to, we have to learn to deal with that fact. We didn't uh, – I read an article the other day that I thought was very interesting that pointed out that back in 1969 there was a, an outbreak of something at the time that was called the Hong Kong flu. Are you familiar with that? Heard of it, yeah. Well, and uh, back in 1969, when the population was probably 100 million fewer people than, to, than, than today, uh, something like 100,000 people uh, died from complications associated with the Hong Kong flu, yet the country wasn't shut down. Every year these things happen. And yes, steps should be taken to reduce uh, people's odds of getting it and people's chances of dying from it and all of that, but the idea that the entire country has to be grenaded for the sake of that is crazy. It's, lo- it's lunacy.
0: Well, like you, I'm taking uh, some some encouragement from the idea that people are starting to find their backbone again and not just stand up for themselves, but also stand up for their neighbors. I hope that we continue to see more of that. We've got to take a very quick commercial break. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. I encourage you to go to his website when we come back. We've got some more exciting stuff to talk about that uh, has everything to do with what you see going on around us today. We'll be back right after this. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. Eric, uh, as the coronavirus crisis <laughs> winds on, there are some encouraging things. I, I have to tell you, and maybe this is fraud for me to, to, to feel this <laughs> way, but... I'm I'm actually kind of tickled to see how uncomfortable some of the people who ratted out their neighbors via these authority tip lines. You know, if you see someone violating the lockdown, say something. Well, it turns out their names are now a part of the public record and they do not like the fact that they are actually being held accountable.
1: Well, if if what they're doing is so laudatory, then why are they afraid of being identified? That's the first point that I would make. And the second point is we're upending some very important uh, established traditions in in the Western world, including the right to confront your accuser. If somebody... Uh, squeals on you and claims that you've done something, I think that you've got a right to know who it is who's doing that. Do we really want to live in East Germany? Do we really want to live in the old Soviet Union where anonymous tips by random uh, neighbors who might just not like you for one reason or another or want to hurt you for one reason or another squeal on you to the government and then the government comes and drags you off to the gulag? That's, That's not America. That's not the place that I want to live.
0: No, I, I completely agree. And, you know, maybe it's just, you know, OK, this is tit for tat. But uh, if, if they are willing to invite someone with a gun to the conversation or into into a situation where there was no violence, there was no harm being done. They're a bad person.
1: And I think they, they're a bad person. They, yeah, they we, should you know, feel the whole uncomfortable. It's been inverted. If, if somebody is terrified of getting Corona, nobody is forcing them to leave their home. So if they want to stay home, great. They should stay home. If they feel that the risk to opening their business is too high, they have every right to close their business. What they don't have the right to do is to is to threaten you and I and other people with guns and tell us we have to stay home. We may not voluntarily interact with others. We may not assume risks for ourselves. How dare they, to use Greta's language, tell us... <laughs> Uh, that uh, they are going to decree what level of risk is acceptable for us, both in terms of our physical health and in terms of our economic health. The whole thing is inverted, and it needs to be put right side up.
0: Well, I'm I'm very encouraged that people are finally starting to realize – We can get back to a degree of normalcy without having to wait for permission from the right person or the right, you know, agency of the government. I'm curious, what are you seeing in your neck of the woods uh, as you're out and about? I know you like to to keep an eye on how things are going. Are you seeing lots of people masked up? Are they still still as fearful as they were?
1: Yeah, well, weirdly, I, I am seeing a lot of people with masks on, and that baffles me, uh, given that at this point we have the information, we have the facts that we did not have two months ago, three months ago, when it was reasonable to assume that maybe this thing really is catastrophically serious and uh, is a mortal threat to a lot of people, and it isn't. We now know that for most people uh... coronavirus doesn't even produce symptoms for eighty percent of the people who get it it doesn't even produce symptoms and for those who uh... who do experience symptoms it's it's generally just like it would be with an ordinary flu you get sick you might get badly sick for a couple of weeks but that's it you recover uh... really the only people who are in real danger of this are people who are in danger from just about any kind of sickness the very elderly and the people who have significant uh... pre-existing health problems uh... and those people of course they should take extra precautions but for the rest of us wearing masks it's it's so bizarre to, to do that if, if you 're wearing a mask in public you're, the idea is that you 're sick right well if you 're sick, you should stay home and if you 're not sick, wearing a mask doesn 't accomplish anything for, for the for the majority of people it's it 's theater it is it is something that's designed to create a visual to the to, to produce the impression of a crisis that doesn't exist. And that's why it's so very dangerous.
0: What do you see on the horizon that we need to be keeping watch over? I mean, I'm hearing talk about, you know, these uh, contact trace initiatives and and apps yeah. and so forth. Is there anything that's, that's causing you know, the hair on the back of your neck to stand up?
1: Yes. Right now, I think the critical battle, the most important thing right now is to reject fear masking. Uh, to to not accept as a condition of reopening that people are going to have to wear masks i don't have a problem with people who for one reason or another want to be howie mandel or michael jackson and wear a mask and wear gloves because they're neurotic about germs that's fine but this idea that masking must be made mandatory is luminously dangerous because it accepts the premise That this is such a bad public health problem that it's necessary. And if you follow that logical chain, then it will become mandatory for us to be vaccinated and tracked. I don't see how you make the contra argument if you accept the premise that masking is reasonable for most people
0: well and it's it's the uh, tracking and and the mandatory vaccinations that's something i'm keeping an eye on I, I think I told you I have a really good friend he he's actually a he's a fellow Virginian he was born and raised in Virginia and has this deep love of liberty. He also works in healthcare care and he's a respiratory yep. therapist over a month ago. he warned me and he said, "You need to watch very closely for this. He says, "You are going to see people in the near future dragged off by response teams shouting." I don't have any symptoms. I am fine. I'm not sick. And he says, yep. it's, it's going to happen. I got to tell you, Eric, I watched uh, I watched a video yesterday. It was out of Canada, but that's exactly what was going on. You know, there's a half dozen armed police officers there to take someone into custody, take them to the doctor so they can answer some questions. We're just here to help you, you know, as, as mm-hmm. we try to resolve this. Crisis. We're just doing our jobs. And, and it was chilling beyond belief.
1: Of course it is, and you notice that this whole business is based on uh, proving a negative. you know they'll say you'll say, "Well, I'm not sick. Well, how do you know you're not sick? You could be sick. you see it's it's not something that's uh, objective and definitive. It goes back to this whole idea of presumptive guilt. It goes back to all the things that I've been ranting about for years, like the drunk driving checkpoints, where even though you've done absolutely nothing, to indicate that you're impaired by alcohol or any other thing, you're required to do the song and dance to the satisfaction of a cop that you are not drunk and your rights are suspended. And that's the sort of principle that has been established in this country for low these many years, and now it's bearing this really ugly fruit. And I agree with you. I think that what's going to happen is that nicks people who don't want to wear the mask, people who, who uh, refuse to get vaccinated are going to be declared public menaces, public menaces to health and safety and dragooned off into the night. I agree with that.
0: That's scary. Well, what, what's the best thing we can do? In your estimation, uh, the people who want to stand for, for liberty, the people who want to live life as normally as possible, what are some of the productive things we can and should be doing?
1: Just that. Be rational and be be normal. Be reasonable. If you're not elderly, uh, if you haven't got some significant underlying problem that makes you vulnerable to the coronavirus or the ordinary flu, uh, do not wear a mask. Refuse to wear a mask. Refuse to walk around like Howie Mandel or Michael Jackson playing the sickness pantomime. Tell businesses that you deal with. Uh, that, that don't have the mask mandate, how grateful you are that they haven't done that, and tell those that do have the mask mandate that you will not do business with them, that this is not acceptable. That's a start.
0: Yeah, I, I'm curious, are, any thoughts on, on how we can better, um, I don't know if yank the leash is the right term, but how can, how can we reassert the the employer-employee relationship with those whom we elect to office who somehow think that they are now the boss?
1: Well, at some point, we have to be willing to risk defiance. Uh, and if it's going to be difficult for the first few people to do it because they're going to be the targets, obviously. But if a few people uh, are willing to stand up and take the heat, uh, then other people will do it. And as we were talking about a few moments ago, if enough of us start to do it, the whole thing comes undone because it becomes unenforceable. And it will have to be dialed back or gotten rid of altogether, hopefully.
0: Well, and I'm starting to see some of those... Uh those strains of, of, look, we've had enough. It is time to stand up and get that boot off our neck, not just here in America, but uh, they had a massive demonstration in Germany just a couple of mm-hmm. days ago. And, and yes, the police, the riot police came in and cracked down and arrested, I don't know, 300 people. But there were thousands yep. of people standing up in one of the most orderly societies in the world and saying, enough, yep. we, we've had enough of enough. this enforced order
1: well they're taking they're literally taking away everything from people and think about how how societally uh... and and otherwise dangerous that is you've got thirty what thirty three million people in this country now who who've lost their jobs and how many uh, how many tens of millions of uh, businesses are being destroyed you take away that from people you take away their ability to provide not only for themselves but to feed their children to keep the roof over their head You've created people who are going to push back and ultimately who are going to hit back, and nobody wants that. We don't want this country to descend into riots like Venezuela, but if this doesn't stop, that's what's going to happen.
0: Agreed. Eric, great to talk with you as always. I encourage my listeners, go to Eric's website, epautos.com. There's great food for thought there. We'll be back after these messages. All right. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service. Please hold your calls until the next hour of the show. That's when we'll open up the phone lines. Good to talk with Eric Peters as always. Let's talk a little bit about some of the lessons now that we are learning from the COVID crisis. Oh, come on. There has been a very steep learning curve for most of us, starting with, uh, I guess, the the first time we went to the store and noticed, hey, (laughs) toilet paper's cleaned out and, uh, you know, bleach is gone. No masks, no gloves, hand sanitizer out of there. That was the beginning of the learning curve for a lot of folks. Well, Daisy Luther has blogged for many years as the organic prepper, and she is someone who has really, I think, had a lot of useful information to impart And this goes back long before this current crisis ever began. So let's look at some of the lessons that she has learned and, uh, you know, particularly had driven home within the last couple of months. I think there were some great takeaways here. You should consider what she has to say. First thing she says, trust your instincts. Now, she says, I began writing about this virus back in January when it was announced that the entire city of Wuhan was being locked down and millions of people were under stay at home orders. With that many people under a mandatory lockdown, she said, I was firmly convinced this is going to have potential global ramifications. Now, she had just come back from Europe to attend a funeral in early January and was supposed to return on January 28th. Well, after doing the research for the article that she has uh, linked to and mentions above, she says, I rescheduled my flight for March 28th and settled in with my youngest daughter at her apartment to help out with the bills. And she says, we immediately began stocking up. Now, she said a lot of folks at that time said she was crazy. A few of them right there on her website, but more so on other sites that republished her work. She says, no, I'm no stranger to being called crazy. I'm in the preparedness industry and I like guns. So right there, the mainstream media sees me as a lunatic. But she says it no longer bothers me. And I was convinced that this was going to be a big deal. And she says every day from January 23rd to the present... She has spent hours researching as this pandemic has unfolded. Now, she says, I sincerely wish I had not been correct. But here we are still in lockdown in many parts of the country. So another lesson that she learned, and I thought this was an especially important one, was you can prepare fast if you're aware before other folks are. She says she had sold or donated nearly everything that her daughters didn't want before she took off on an open ended trip to Europe last fall. The other items were divided up between her two girls. So while the daughter with whom she stayed still had a few things like firearms, water filters and so forth, the stockpile was pretty much gone. Well, Daisy Luther says by the end of January, she said, I was pretty sure we were going to see mandatory quarantines or lockdowns here. And that's why she started stocking up. Now, she says it's important to note that at that point you could still buy anything you wanted or needed. So she grabbed some extra masks and gloves, but most of her focus was on food and everyday supplies. So by the end of February, she said, I was pretty content with the amount of supplies we had. I'd spent as little as possible on right now food and focused most of my budget on shelf stable items like canned goods, pasta and rice. And she says for about $600, we accumulated a supply that would see us through a minimum of three months without leaving the house. She says, I figured if it turned out that I'd overreacted, well, my daughter could use the food anyway. Now, this was an interesting point here. She said, I also started a personal spending freeze at the end of January. If it wasn't an item we needed to become better prepared, I didn't spend a dime. She says, I was able to put back a few months worth of expenses while still stocking up. And it helped that her daughter was living thrifty in a less expensive apartment with utilities included. Now, she says, I was very concerned about things like cash flow. And it turns out this has been a huge problem for a lot of people. The next lesson that Daisy Luther points to is you can't always have the ideal situation. She says there were a lot of things about her situation that were less than ideal, but that's probably true in a lot of cases. You just have to adapt to the reality of your situation instead of endlessly wishing it was different or feeling that it's hopeless. In other words, less than ideal does not mean that all hope is lost. First, there was the situation of living arrangements. She has a daughter in Canada and a daughter in the U.S. Now, her older daughter in Canada has been working longer and is better established. But her younger daughter, who lives in the U.S., was new to the workforce and didn't have a lot of money. So Daisy Luther stayed with her to help out financially. Her apartment's in a lower-middle-class residential area of the city where she works. And thankfully, it's a two-bedroom. And she says, I only brought with me two suitcases. Now, living in an apartment without much of a yard during this kind of event... Isn't something she would have chosen, but she says given time, you know, if she was given time to seek alternatives, but as we all know, this crept up rather fast. So moving was not an option. Instead, she focused on hardening the apartment with plywood to put up at the windows, trip wires that could be set up quickly if needed and sturdier locks. They also got some quarantine warning signs they could post just in case all hell broke loose as a potential deterrent. And she set up spotlights in the front yard. Now, currently, those spotlights face the stairs to the front door. But in a bad situation, they could be turned around to illuminate anyone coming up to the house instead. She says we bought more ammo for our firearms. We sat down together to work through potential scenarios. We developed a fatal funnel in the front hallway. And stumbling blocks in the front hall that could be shoved in front of the door to slow down and advance. Just cardboard boxes filled with hardcover books. Nothing fancy. Here's the really important part, though. She says, we made friends with the other family who lives in the building while maintaining our OPSEC, our operational security. Because it's always good to have allies and they have a better line of sight from their upper apartment. Now, she says, normally I would have bought loads of organic food and preserved it myself. But early in the crisis, there was a question of whether or not we'd have power throughout the emergency. And there just wasn't enough time at this late date. So her stockpile isn't ideal. There's a lot of store bought canned goods and carbs like pasta and rice, but it's filling and versatile. And most of all, it was what was readily available. She says, uh, so while this isn't our normal diet or even our normal preps, we're fortunate to have it and we continue to hit the store weekly for foods that are more normal but can easily shift to the stockpile if it becomes necessary. The idea here is if your situation isn't perfect, don't just throw your hands up in the air and give up. You should adapt instead. She says it's okay to have feelings. And this is good to know. Look, I know people think, well, these preppers, you know, they're so cocksure they have this all figured out. But she says, really, this has been an extraordinary situation and she says i can i can't say that i've never had any doubts whatsoever even though her intuition was right on we've all suffered losses she says losses of loved ones losses of jobs losses of dreams and the uncertainty of what lies ahead is difficult it's hard and that's not to say that other situations that have occurred haven't been harder or resulted in more loss it's it's not a contest we don't have to compare and invalidate how this made us feel in fact she says i've even felt that this can't possibly be happening I know that it is happening, but there's still that little part of me that was shocked to see it occur. Can you relate to that? She says how you feel about something, however that is, it's valid. We're allowed to have feelings. Just don't let your feelings paralyze you. Then she talks about one of the lessons learned was to invest in education. And by this, she's talking life education. And she talks about taking in-person courses on gardening and food preservation from a county extension office, a violence de-escalation course, Krav Maga, martial art, marketing, never underestimate the power of using words to motivate others, learn how to raise and butcher animals for food, take firearms courses, Selko's urban survival course for women in Croatia, he said that was one of the big ones, very essential, a defensive knife course. She says there are a lot of experts out there who've learned from their experiences. Never think you know too much to learn anything from them because she says, I promise you, there are things you never even considered. And you'll be far more prepared to face the potential violence or hardships of future scenarios from those who have been down those roads. She also warns that the value of things changes. Before this, who would have thought that toilet paper would be the new gold or there would be countless articles all over the media about toilet paper substitutes? One thing she says she learned was that the value of things changes dramatically in unusual situations. And I think most of us got an idea of that when we saw the store shelves stripped bare in a matter of days and in many places around the country. And inventory still really hasn't fully recovered. People had to improvise when their first choices were gone by choosing from the things that were remaining. And the shortages, she says, that we faced weren't really the ones that she expected. Bleach, yeast, and paper products were at the top of everyone's to-buy lists. She says, I supposed that I assumed that if the stores were still open, we wouldn't be facing limited quantities of items like meat and pasta. Instead of nurturing non-food-bearing plants, people are nurturing their sourdough starters and seedlings. And nobody really cares about buying new clothes right now or frivolous new shoes, because where are you going to wear them? Instead, there's a run on N95 masks and seeds. Many people have zeroed in on the real necessities. That's where their money is going. Now, here's another one, and I thought this was kind of a stark warning, but it it needs to be said. People may not be who you think they are. She says one thing that was particularly eye-opening was the actions of others. There were close family members and friends who proved they were not the people that that she wanted in her inner circle if things hit the fan. Some of the reactions of people about whom she cares were incredibly disappointing, even downright shocking. Folks who she thought would be ready to roll with whatever situation might come stunned her by refusing to accept what was happening because it wasn't the apocalypse for which they'd prepared. Maybe you've had some similar lessons. We've got to take a real quick break. We'll come back in a few moments and finish up. Again, this is from Daisy Luther, published today on LouRockwell.com. What I learned during the COVID crisis I'll have a link to it in the show notes. I would encourage you to take a look at it, share it, learn from it. This is Loving Liberty. And just like that, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. I'm sharing with you an article from Daisy Luther. What I learned during the COVID crisis. Now, she's been a prepper for a long time. She has she really has a lot of depth and knowledge to draw from. And so it was very interesting to see her perspective of all the things that she's been prepared for and all the ways that she's helped other people get prepared. It was curious to see that there was a fairly steep learning curve for her as well. One of the most shocking things that she points out is how people may not be who you think they are. And she talks about how she encountered people who were not within her immediate family and friends who surprised her. She says their situation, this situation rather was a study in human behavior. The reason they surprised her was because of their greed, their anger and their sense of entitlement. She says, after hearing about how they spoke of others who'd been wise enough to stock up ahead of time with ugly words like hoarder and selfish. She says, I was very glad I never confided my preparedness efforts in them. I saw people display incredibly short fuses and respond with rage over the slightest little thing. I saw others who took this opportunity to behave with increased violence and glimpses of the potential predator inside them. And she says, of course, like all of you, I'd read about these things, but seeing it in action was entirely different. Now, she also counsels one of the lessons that she learned was don't have regrets. She caught herself a few times thinking, wow, I wish we still had our farm by the creek back in California. And the last house we lived in would have been far better suited for this situation. But she stops herself because there's no point in having regrets. Daisy Luther says, I'm glad I gave my daughter the chance to get on her feet or to get her feet on the ground, rather, as an adult, and I'm very happy I spent time in Europe, even if it meant that I had to start from scratch to get prepped for this event. Other people have told me that they spent time wishing they'd never moved from a more suitable place, or they regret frivolous purchases they made when that money could have been better spent on preps. Well, look, she says we all probably could have made different decisions in the past that would lead to more stability now. But many of those decisions resulted in other types of benefits, great experiences, new friends or an improved mindset. The point here is life is too short to have regrets. And if you're looking backward, you won't see what's right in front of you. And that can be dangerous in an uncertain world. Final lesson from Daisy Luther. Don't put things off. If there were things you've been putting off until to to do until some future date when everything is perfect, then stop. One of the biggest mistakes she says she's learned is that delaying things until the right time presents itself is a mistake. She's glad she took the classes that she mentioned. She's glad she spent months in Greece, Macedonia and Montenegro. And she says, I'm absolutely returning to Europe when the situation allows it. I learned a kind of flexibility wandering around countries where I don't speak the language that I never had before. I can sleep anywhere. I can quickly identify resources and navigate my way through new places. She says, I learned some thrifty habits that are cultural norms in the Balkans. And those experiences completely changed my mindset, made me more adaptable and built my confidence. Now your goals and dreams may look a lot more different than mine, but she says, when that chance returns to reach them, do it. Get that piece of property, start building that cabin, grow that garden, even if it's in pots on your balcony. Explore those places you've always wanted to see. Start the business, write the book, buy that prep that you've been thinking about, because tomorrow may no longer be available. There is no perfect time. Life is for living, not staying in your safety bubble that looks an awful lot like a rut. Even life after a pandemic. I, don't, I hope you find that as useful as I did. I thought that was really solid information, and she's got a lot of links there within that uh, that story, which you will find in the show notes posted at LovingLiberty.net. Just pull up hour one of today's broadcast, or podcast rather, and you can check it out for yourself. Now, you're ready for some good news. We've had a lot of bad news. In fact, it's been kind of like nonstop bad news week after week, month after month. Let's talk about how... People have adapted and innovated in order to uh, help solve problems. For instance, this is a story from the Philadelphia Inquirer about a Berks County woman using Facebook to rescue an egg farmer's 80,000 hens amid the coronavirus. So the story is this Hamburg egg farmer, Josh Zimmerman was facing disaster about a month ago when his bulk egg processor ran out of storage for liquefied eggs for cruise ships, hospitals, hotels, and school cafeterias. I guess when you buy them in bulk, you're, we're talking yellow goo from millions of eggs stored in bladder bags, they'd filled all the available freezer space, so the processors had to shut off the flow. Well, that can be a problem, because this, uh, this guy had a veritable old man river of eggs 60,000 a day rolling out of his hen houses. And Zimmerman faced a very hard choice, either euthanize his 80,000 hen flock or find a new market for the eggs. Well, into that void stepped go-getter Timmy Boucher, who runs the Nesting Box Farm Market in Cremery in Campton, Pennsylvania, about 20 minutes from Zimmerman's cage-free spread, both in, Burke County, in Berks County. She proposed to sell some of Zimmerman's eggs at her roadside market, offering a minimum of five dozen on flats for a discounted $2 a dozen. Now, Zimmerman was skeptical, but he was also desperate, and he thought, okay, maybe she'll move a skid or two a week. Boucher, whose farmer husband Keith says his wife has Facebook down to a T, posted Zimmerman's story on Facebook and Instagram, describing Zimmerman's hens and their existential plight. And she wrote, let's do this nesting box peeps. Well, it went viral within about 30 seconds. It reached about half a million people eventually. Traffic backed up outside the roadside nesting box market on the first day of the egg sale on April 27th, with consumers excited to save the chickens and help a local farmer in a pandemic-induced financial crisis. So Boucher relocated the event to the 50-acre Kempton Community Center, staffing a bulk sale on May 3rd with 30 volunteers, mostly women and a few teenage girls from a scout troop. Keith Boucher buzzed around on a forklift unloading big boxes marked eggs on skids from a refrigerated trailer. And volunteers unpacked the egg flats on long tables and then buyers drove by for a contactless transaction. I mean, they're hitting on all cylinders here. She ended up selling 18,000 dozen eggs for about $36,000, which goes towards hauling, refrigerating, packing and keeping the chickens alive. As for the business arrangement, Boucher said it's a partnership between the two farms, and I'll leave it at that. One person drove more than an hour on May 3rd, loading her Subaru Outback with 360 dozen eggs in boxes for about 40 families and food pantries. She'd read about Zimmerman on Facebook. She said it's a really wonderful story of how humans come together to help people in our food chain. And she reached home without any cracked cargo. No big deal, because there was no traffic. Another individual bought 30 dozen eggs she'd also connected on Facebook. Small farms need support, she said, adding that she called around a family that morning taking orders for eggs. I called everybody. (laughs) Well, even as political leaders start to uh, reopen the economy, the nation's food supply chain remains disrupted because of the huge shift in eating habits and more people dining at home. Meat plants have closed because of COVID-19 outbreaks among employees. Each commodity seems to be dealing with a major disruption. About 30% of the eggs produced in the U.S. are usually destined for the liquefied egg market for fast food restaurants, hotels, school cafeterias, and food production for mayonnaise, salad dressings, and other products. But the near standstill of the economy has closed off that vast market. So egg farmers like Zimmerman, who are under contract to bulk processors, have had to find new markets such as exports, or they've had to euthanize their flocks, which continued to produce eggs. Now, supermarkets could use the eggs, but those heading to the retail markets have to be washed, graded, packed in cartons and shipped to stores, which are now a bottlene- bottleneck rather in the farm-to-supermarket supply chain. Brian Moskog-Jury, director and egg industry analyst with Erner Berry in Toms River, Pennsylvania, estimated that 40 million to 50 million egg-laying hens have been idled by the pandemic. Now, some of those hens will have to be euthanized. Erner Berry tracks protein commodity prices for eggs, fish, meat, poultry, and pork. They say that uh, egg farmers in the liquefied market have to hold on to their business in whatever way they can until the restaurants can reopen. As for when that could be, Moscow Jury said, you tell me when the restaurants will be back after the outbreak. I don't know. There's really no telling when demand will return to pre-pandemic levels. It turned off like a switch. It will not turn back on as quickly. And, of course, there's a sense of pitching in to help local farmers during dark days, which I think is the whole point of this story. Of course, the price is very good at $2 a dozen, Don Myers, president of the Kempton Community Center, said. But he said, I'm flabbergasted myself. He says, the word spread, and here they came. It's amazing. They had a good crowd again last Sunday in Kempton. And there are about 100 cars lined up as he as he's speaking. I guess if there's a lesson to draw from this, it's that... We can find innovative ways. You know, you notice nobody in government organized this, planned it, executed it from the top down with all the proper permits and inspections and blah, blah, blah. I mean, nobody was being reckless. Nobody was, uh, you know, willfully or knowingly endangering anybody else. But they sure solved the problem. And I think this is the kind of innovation, the kind of thinking, the kind of permissionless innovation, if you will, That we're going to have to get used to in the days ahead. That's going to be a tough habit for some people to break. We're used to asking permission. Please, may I, if it please the crown, may I, you know, go ahead and solve this problem? I guess our challenge is to be problem solvers without waiting around for someone in authority to give us permission to be problem solvers.